reaching net zero emissions by 2050 seems out of reach in the absence of a major acceleration of clean energy technology innovations. India, as you know, is keenly looking at accelerating its entire innovation ecosystem and clean energy forms a major component in it. The startup ecosystem is challenging the status quo. It's audacious, ambitious, you know, it's trying to reimagine and transform the way we produce and consume and uh, not just energy, but anything. I just think we need, um, we probably need tens of companies, if not hundreds, of the size of BP and Shell just working on decarbonization. I believe that in a space like this, it's important for a company to keep disrupting not just the market, but also itself. I'm an optimist and I think uh, people might be thinking in a linear fashion, but a lot of these things happen non-linearly. So. The systems change in some of the sectors, such as mobility, is very palpable. Hi, this is Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovations and innovators that could help take us to a net zero emissions future. I'm Siddharth Singh, a consultant with the IA based in India, working on a range of issues that impact energy transitions. And I'm Simon Bennett, a technology analyst with the IA in Paris, leading work on energy innovation policy globally. In today's episode, we're delighted to have with us Akshay Singhal, the founder and CEO of Log9 Materials a company that has been developing advanced energy storage technologies. Akshay is a specialist in material engineering and has worked in the field of nanotechnology for the better part of the past decade. Akshay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ivan. Welcome, Akshay. Now, before we dig deeper into the innovations and experiences of our guest, here's a broad challenge we're dealing with. India has about 270 million vehicles on the road today of which nearly 80% are either two or three wheelers. Of course, most of these vehicles run on petrol or diesel. In two decades, under the current pathway, we estimate that the total vehicle stock will more than double. The demand for cars and trucks in particular will grow very sharply, increasing their share to about 45% of the vehicle stock by 2040. As a result, the demand for oil and the associated CO2 emissions will also more than double in these two decades. To put India on course for a net zero by 2070 pathway, India will need to invest heavily into alternate energy technologies for road transport in the next decade itself. To realize this net zero pathway, about 20% of India's road vehicle stock will have to be electric by 2030. One of the harder to abate segments of transport will be heavy trucks. Under the current pathway, they are the single largest contributor to diesel demand growth over the coming decades. For people to actually purchase electric bikes, auto rickshaws, cars, and trucks, at least two elements of the puzzle will need to be addressed, range and charging times. And this is where Log9 Materials comes in. And this is the point of the show where I valiantly try to explain what it is that Log9 Materials have innovated here and to present it to Akshay and see if we've correctly understood it and also its future potential. Now, Siddharth, from a technology perspective, I'm so excited about today's discussion because Log9 has managed to navigate so many twists and turns of technology focus in such a very short space of time. 
But in terms of the technology problem that they're solving, my understanding is that the journey began with a question totally unrelated to energy. And that question was, if we are a company that can make more graphene than anybody else, but there's no demand for it, then what products can we make in order to move ourselves up the value chain? Now, this requires a little bit of introduction. Graphene is a novel material that has very high electrical conductivity and can be made in very thin membranes. And what Log9 has discovered is that graphene can have a transformative effect on two technologies for electric mobility, both of which could help overcome the limits to the growth of EVs. The first of these developments is the use of graphene to improve the efficiency of aluminum air batteries. Metal air batteries are something that's been around since the 1960s, and aluminum ones have long been commercialized because they're light and they have very high energy density. It might surprise many of our listeners, but aluminum actually has a tremendous ability to release energy and is even used as backup power on rockets. In addition, aluminum is highly abundant, and unlike the inputs to lithium-ion batteries, it's available in India. But these batteries are not rechargeable, so their use in electric vehicles would require a constant supply of new batteries. Now, what Akshay and his colleagues have done is taken a fresh look at this problem and asked, what if you could just swap out the aluminium and not the whole battery? And the solution they've actually come up with is a car that they've put on the road and it can drive for a thousand kilometers on each refuel of its aluminium fuel. Now that fuel is essentially an aluminium sheet. And when it's used up, it's oxidized to bauxite in the, in the car. And that bauxite is the same as the natural form in which aluminium is mined. So the process of then re-smelting the bauxite back to aluminium is, I think, akin to recharging a battery with electricity. Now, they call this an aluminium fuel cell, and that sort of helped me to understand that perhaps it's more equivalent to a hydrogen system. The fuel cell stays in the vehicle, and you top up the fuel by buying hydrogen that has been produced elsewhere from an energy source plus water in the case of hydrogen. And in the vehicle, the fuel cell produces water again from the hydrogen combined with oxygen. It can provide very long range. So despite having lower efficiency and having the whole system inside the vehicle in the form of a battery, uh, now the efficiency for hydrogen is something around 50% instead of more like 80 to 90% for batteries, uh, which means that you need roughly twice the number of PV panels and wind turbines per kilometer. It does make it very attractive for trucks because of the range and also for long distance freight modes of other kinds and even for remote stationary applications. Aluminium is much easier to handle and trade than hydrogen gases. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see the competition between these two play out. Now, I mentioned there were two applications that Log9 had been working on relating to mobility. And the second one is fast charging for lithium ion batteries. The long charging times for electric vehicles remain a barrier to adoption, especially for commercial drivers who cannot afford downtime and even for personal vehicles that don't have off-road parking. And by designing a supercapacitor that uses graphene, as I understand it, and integrating that into a battery pack, Log9 can accommodate much higher charging speeds. But instead of stopping at just selling battery packs, they've decided to partner with a maker of three-wheeler taxis in India to make one that can add 45 kilometers of charge in just 40 minutes from a standard power socket. They may not be the only ones looking at this type of solution, and they have competition perhaps from Skeleton Technologies in Europe and Tesla in the United States. But that kind of competition can surely only make for faster progress in this segment. And it's very exciting to see the progress being made so quickly. So with that, I'm going to bring in Akshay and ask him if we did a reasonable job of introducing what Log9 have been up to. Well, thanks, Simon. I think uh, this was the best somebody has described it, though I will still 
point out a few corrections there, but I think this is by far the best I have heard somebody talk about log nine as a third party. So uh, thanks a lot for that. So uh, basically, um, uh, there are two tracks of technology as you mentioned uh, rightly, which is aluminum fuel cell uh, and uh, high power lithium and other charge discharge based technologies that we are developing at log nine. And it all started actually with graphene and how we were trying to leverage it for creating a solution for long range mobility and hence aluminum fuel cell. And as we were developing aluminum fuel cell, we realized that uh, any fuel cell, whether it's hydrogen fuel cell or aluminum air battery based system, it always requires uh, a sink and a, and, a, and, a, and a supply of boosts of energy. So you need a battery bank in the middle between the vehicle and the aluminum fuel cell itself or hydrogen fuel cell if you are dealing with one over there to channelize the energy in the right way because the fuel cell will always generate constant power. Whereas when you're driving a vehicle, you will always have accelerations and then brakes and all of those things. So the power is fluctuating all the time. So you need a, a storage bank in the middle to kind of channelize that energy effectively. And that's where our, uh, we ventured out into developing technologies which are higher power, uh, supercapacitors and the likes. Uh, because while the range uh, or the energy capacity is coming in from the fuel cell itself, uh, what you need over here is to be able to manage power on the system. And hence, you need very high power density solutions for this storage bank. Once we developed it in 2019, we realized that, oh, this storage bank in itself has an application, especially uh, in countries like India and most of the tropical uh, regions, because these kind of technologies not only provide you with higher power, but they all also provide you with higher temperature resilience, faster charging time, and, and also uh, uh, can be leveraged to create a consistent performance on a smaller platform. Because typically when you talk about cars like Tesla or vehicles like Tesla in that sense, there's a very large battery in the vehicle. And that large battery is able to provide you the right kind of power and performance on the, on the, on the, on the car that you're driving. But in case of smaller platforms like two wheelers and three wheelers, because the battery is smaller, purely from volume constraint, as well as from cost constraints, you're not able to get the same kind of power and performance like you would get otherwise in a petrol or a diesel vehicle. So realizing that, uh, we were able to see the gap uh, in, in, in Indian uh, market, particularly, wherein a lot of existing uh, lithium-ion based battery packs were failing in the market. Uh, sometimes they were just catching fire because of the heat that we have in the country. Other times they were degrading too fast. So within a year's time, they were losing 20, 25, 30% of their range. Uh, and hence, nobody was happy, especially when these vehicles were being used for commercial utility. And essentially, commercial utilization of vehicles is what is uh, kind of uh, already at cost parity in India. And uh, it makes sense both from an economical perspective as well as from an environment perspective. Because a lot of times what we do when we are trying to push for a green solution is that where we start, we tend to forget where we started from, right? Electric vehicles won't make sense if they are not solving for climate. And matter of uh, fact is that unless and until an electric vehicle is driven for more than 100,000 kilometers, it is worse than a diesel car or a diesel platform, equivalent diesel platform. And only when a vehicle can be driven for more than 100,000 kilometers, that's when the electric, uh, the, benefit, the green benefit of electric vehicle really comes out. And that's on the basis of the, the emissions from the power grid in India. Emissions from the power grid, as well as what we don't realize is that before the vehicles even hit the road, uh, EV is almost 70 to 80% more polluting as compared to a normal diesel or a petrol car. 
and this is i'm talking about when you're talking about decent range like a 150 kilometers that such if you're talking about 250 kilometers 300 400 kilometers range on a vehicle this 70 80% difference will go up to uh, 150% 200% more polluting to make the vehicle itself uh, as compared to a diesel petrol car and then as you rightly said we're trying to make this balance by using power which was anyway generated uh, burning coal so it takes a long time to get that parity in that sense and that's where it makes sense at least right now in majority of uh, regions of the world to electrify commercial vehicles before we electrify the personal mobility vehicles because it makes sense for the user for the driver for the owner of these vehicles because uh, it leads to cost savings on a longer term basis as well as it is good for the environment and uh, almost two third of vehicular emissions uh, in india come from commercial utilization of vehicles rather than the personal mobility vehicles so that's what that's where we are focused on uh, particularly coming to your first uh, correction in your introduction of log 9 is that the three wheelers that uh, we have been able to put out these are not uh, taxis these are basically three wheeler cargo vehicles used in last mile in india uh, for delivering your e-commerce parcels and and various other kind of deliveries and uh, we offer a range of not 45 kilometers but 90 kilometers on these vehicles uh, there is a typo that's on my end uh, on the website uh, but it's not 90 kilometers which we just figured out last night and it's a coincidence that we're talking about it today but yeah it's 90 kilometers and it gets charged uh, 0 to 100% in 35 minutes and uh, the overall degradation over around 3 lakh or 300000 odd kilometers 400000 odd kilometers would be less than 2 to 3% as compared to two batteries degrading 20 25% in that in that time span so that's what we are able that's kind of resilience and reliability is what we are able to offer uh, in the indian market uh, for the for the two wheeler three wheeler segment so very very happy to to make that correction <laughs> um, and so the the degradation issue is is solved by the the power management on board because of the the supercapacitor is that right so the thing is that there are again like as we have two tracks uh, one aluminum fuel cell is a track targeted towards long haul mobility uh, on the intercity short haul mobility we have a high power lithium cells as a track is what i call them so there is supercapacitor chemistry that has been developed there are other high power lithium chemistries that have been locally developed in log mine and we try to mix and match these a uh, uh, couple of cell options that we have to create a battery pack separately for uh, commercial mobility application and as we go along at log 9 maybe in a couple of years for personal mobility as well so overall uh, this uh, technology this battery pack as a concept has two levels of uh, innovation from log 9 one is right from the material level to cell level and then uh, at the electronics level how we are able to manage power because one of the important aspects of also uh, faster charging is that how do you get that much of power from the grid so how do you kind of bank uh, power on a slower basis and are able to kind of channelize it through a, a fast dc charger into the vehicle so all of that uh, uh, charging layer combined with cell level chemistry is what we have been able to develop locally and we are the first company in india to have a ground up developed cell technology in the country and there is just so much on a technology front for us to 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 explore that we're simply not going to have time for and it's all been achieved in a remarkable space of time um by by you and your colleagues the the one point that i just wanted to to highlight here i think that you mentioned in passing is that 
some of the existing solutions that we have in the electric mobility space are not fully fit for purpose in the Indian context because of either the climate or the technology or because of the battery size for some of the applications. So I, I just wanted to make sure that everybody was understanding you're solving for a, a problem that is specific to local context, but that is a local context that is one of the world's largest potential markets uh, for EVs. Absolutely. You, you got that uh, bang on. And uh, also, it's not just about India. It is the entire tropical belt of the world, right? So what whatever batteries have been designed and customized for applications in US, Europe, and China, they can, cannot be force-fitted into uh, the vehicle platforms, the kind of usage patterns, and the climatic conditions that we have in the tropical belt, which includes India, Southeast Asia, Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and the likes. So, and and what what has been happening so far is that we're just borrowing technology or uh, getting this stuff from outside and trying to force fit in our in our platforms and failing miserably. I can tell you examples of uh, people who run fleets of 100, 200, 500 vehicles, which which have bought these uh, initial uh, offerings in the market in the two-wheel electric and the three-wheel electric space. And hundreds of these vehicles are just standing in the warehouse because the batteries degraded within six months' time. So if a fleet operator was doing commercial deliveries on these, for example, food deliveries on these two-wheelers or e-commerce deliveries on these three-wheelers, if he started, he or she started with a range of uh, around 80 kilometers or 90 kilometers, and within a year time, that range has dropped down to less than 60 kilometers, commercial viability is just gone out of the window. They can't use it. And at the same time as the range is degrading, the performance on these vehicles is also degrading. So initially they were able to kind of accelerate to, let's say, 60 kilometers per hour or 70 kilometers per hour, which is also not much, by the way. But uh, now they're not even able to go beyond 30, 35 kilometers per hour. So that leads to a lot of challenges and a lot of bad faith for electric vehicles in general in the market. And while quality has been there in the Indian market as far as two wheels and three wheels are concerned for the last two years, adoption has not scaled as we expected to because of these operational challenges. And then recently we had all the incidents of two wheelers catching fire just standing on the road. They were not even being charged or used or anything. Luckily, nobody was riding on them while they while they caught fire. So all of those kind of things have happened and that will continue to happen unless and until we have technologies which are built ground up keeping the local conditions in mind. Absolutely spot on. I think it'll be very important for the start of this, uh, you know, electric vehicle revolution to be, you know, visibly correct. It should be visibly uh, safe. It should be visibly convenient, comfortable. Unless we are able to solve for these kind of problems, it could really delay this transition. And, you know, as uh, as we all know, like petrol and diesel literally form a, a bulk more than 95 percent of all energy used in uh, road transport so it's something that we really need to get right for a range of reasons including air pollution of course climate change and also in india's case it's import dependency of of crude oil but but uh, but akshay so it's it's truly a fascinating set of challenges that you're working on you know i think we'd really at this point like to understand a little bit more about where you're coming from so you've had quite an illustrious career with, you know, deep expertise in, in material engineering and nanotechnology. You know, how did this come about? We'd like to know a little bit more about, you know, where you grew up, what did you study and what path uh, did you take that eventually took you to becoming the founder of Log9 Materials? Yeah, thanks a lot uh, for asking that. So it's a very, um, so to say, <laughs> uh, interesting story. So I come from a very, very small town uh, in the north of India. 
so you would know about Institute of Technologies, IITs, uh, which are the premier institutes across the country. So one of them happened to be in a small uh, shanty of a town called Rurki. It's called IIT Rurki, uh, which also, by the way, interesting story. So we just, uh, that institute uh, is the oldest engineering institute in the country. And last week, uh, it completed 175 years of existence. But it happens to be in a very small town. And apart from uh, that campus, there is nothing really, nothing else in that city. So uh, I actually come from a even smaller town uh, close to that place. Uh, that's where I grew up. Uh, and uh, never wanted to join uh, ID Rurki because we were too close to home. But uh, apparently, that's the only choice I had at that time. And uh, so that would uh, re uh, relate to that. I'm not sure if Simon and uh, others on the call can relate to it, but uh, we don't have much of a choice when it comes to choosing engineering colleges in India. Uh, so I, I happened to join there. Luckily, uh, at that time, one of my uh, grandfathers, uh, so my real grandfather's brother, so he was a scientist uh, in National Physical Laboratory of India. And uh, he was uh, he just retired at that time when I joined college. And uh, he had been working in the field of nanotechnology for the last 40 years, uh, doing various different applications. And uh, he said that, why don't I, uh, so he was based in Delhi, uh, which is like 200 kilometers odd from there. And uh, he said, why don't I uh, start coming to Turkey every weekend? And uh, if you can find a space, you can convince one of your professors to give us some lab space in the college. Uh, I can maybe uh, get you introduced to the nanotechnology space and you can start working in that. So I was like, yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. Why not? So we were, uh, I was lucky enough to kind of get a, a space and empty lab in the campus. And that's how uh, my initiation into nanotechnology happened. This was 2013. Uh, yeah. So that's when we started. He started coming every weekend to Rurki. And then we started working in the lab. Uh, and then I happened to... Uh, go to Canada for my internship a year after that. And I think that was the most ideal time in my life that I ever had or I will ever have in that sense. And uh, if any Canadians are joining on the call, they might not like it, I think. But I think uh, for me, uh, the, the culture was very laid back uh, over there. So I had a lot of thinking space. I had a lot of time to kind of think what to do in life, what, what not to do. And one thing I realized is that a lot of times in India, we crib about that there's a lack of resources, not enough R&D infrastructure is available. But my perception or my understanding was slightly contrarian to that. That resources are there. You might have to slightly, uh, you might have to put in more fight uh, to get those resources because obviously the competition is higher. We uh, apparently have too much of a population in the country. So it's harder to get it. Resources are there. So I realized that I have it in me to kind of fight for those resources. and. Uh, uh, we'll come back to India, set up Log9. So the entire concept of Log9 as a company was uh, born in Canada uh, because there was too much time to think about it. And uh, then I, the moment I came back, uh, I started a small lab in the backyard of my house, uh, converted my father's co-down into, into, uh, uh, into a graphene manufacturing lab uh, where my mother would uh, run the operation. She herself is a chemist uh, by education. So... She ran the operations of manufacturing graphene for the first few years, and uh, I would be in college doing more for the R and D, developing uh, for the competencies around it. That's how it started. Yeah, that's truly fascinating. I think uh, it really helps having parents who are supportive, and and for you to be able to do this in your own backyard. I think uh, uh, you know, in a in a lot of cases, a lot of Indian families 
who may not have the similar kind of you know ecosystem within the same family the the pressures are usually to to quickly get a job and and you know uh, you know put a start to your career working for someone else as opposed to starting out your own company so uh, well uh, i think uh, we're all really grateful that you had this ecosystem and and now will actually be able to help india's transition you know move along um uh, but akshay uh, you know in the years since uh, your company was founded uh, there has been some evolution in its focus uh, can you talk a little bit more about what led to these you know changes or this kind of evolution how has the world changed in these few years and uh, importantly if you could go back to your founding year or the time when you were in your you know home laboratory what mistakes did you make back then that you would like to uh, you know avoid repeating today okay so i'll take the first part of the question first and uh, so when when i started log9 the primary so to say philosophy or the agenda behind starting log9 was that uh, we as a country have always been technology adopters and not technology creators so while uh, resources exist and i said that there's competition for it but it, it is possible here and it was with that vision and mission to kind of uh, prove it to the world that yes ground up uh, technologies in the strategic areas can be uh, developed within india and uh, in the country so that's how it started but as i uh, went along i realized uh, the the need to kind of solve for climate and uh, over the years that that con- conviction has only gotten stronger and stronger and stronger and now uh, like at log 9 uh, the the only go no go checkpoint that we have with any decision is that if it makes sense for the climate let's go and do it if it doesn't make sense for the climate we don't need to do it we don't need to waste time here and and that has been the most significant evolution of uh, the purpose of our existence in in general and coming to the second part of the question which is uh, what could have i could have done better uh, i think i could have left rurki earlier that was <laughs> i spent too much time in that city uh, if i had uh, moved, we spent two years uh, after college uh, over there uh, in the campus developing our tech uh, at least that could have been cut short by uh, any year or so um, and uh, but that's okay yeah, initially we were we were dumb we were we were new we were noob so that's okay uh and uh, also i think uh, if i have could have got gotten on to the climate bandwagon uh, much earlier that would have helped uh, overall log nine and the general ecosystem as well what i realized today maybe that understanding was uh, slightly immature 3 years ago and if there was more awareness at that time in the general ecosystem we could have kind of started uh, focusing on solving for climate in general because one thing that i realized Uh, what's happening in the ecosystem is that a lot of solutions are being developed with a green blindfold as i call it so we have a green bl- bl- uh, blindfold on our eyes when we're just rushing towards solutions without understanding the holistic impact of those solutions on our environment and there is a high probability as i see things today that in 2030 or 2040 will be sitting and reevaluating what we have done and we might end up realizing that in many solutions we did more harm than than the good that was that we set out to do. So you say that you know this, and I, I'm guessing this sort of pivot towards climate tech it was in 2017, 2018, perhaps. So, so relatively recent. What what share of that decision around climate was economic, and what share was sort of a um, a kind of a, a sustainability or ethical drive within the within the company? So inherently, I think it comes from my upbringing as well, wherein uh, I think. and it is a very generalistic thing in many parts of indian families wherein 
uh, although it is portrayed as, as we are cost saving, but there is an inherent sense of saving for the climate that, okay, switch off the lights when it's not required, using less of it, using less of water, and uh, 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 using less of packaged food, uh, eat healthy, eat food which is cooked at home and stuff like that. So it has it has been portrayed in wrong terms. It has not been linked to climate in general, but there has been a sense of uh, saving resources, uh, at least in my upbringing. And that was behind, in the back of my mind forever. Uh, but as, uh, as I became more aware of the world and the challenges that, uh, that the world is facing, because for me, at least it's about solving the most impactful thing. Right. What what does what what is it? What is the most important crisis that we can kind of work towards also uh, solve solve for? And that led led me to uh, uh, solving for climate in general. And in that also we had a couple of options. Like uh, in 2017, when we moved to Bangalore and started looking at applications of graphene, energy storage was one, but there was also filtration. And then uh, in a year or so, we realized that solving for energy storage and energy in general is far more valuable than filtration and there are anyway a lot of people doing that so let's let's focus on which uh, on the biggest problem out there because as a as a founder and somebody trying to grow a company you must have to talk about money perhaps more than you you'd like to sometimes so you know what has been your experience of trying to raise the capital that sustains the company uh, both before and after this this pivot towards mobility and 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 climate related technologies What's your your sense of whether the the right capital was available at the right times, and whether that's improved over over time? I think uh, situation there has been a significant transition pre and post COVID. I think uh, uh, sensibility to to impending crisis uh, has uh, has been uh, like the understanding of that is far more there in the ecosystem now as compared to even March of twenty twenty or before. And uh, it, it, it was also, I, I could perceive the same thing in our fundraising activities and uh, attempts because before March 2020, 2020 uh, we would call up 10 people and one would turn up on a call uh, for an investment pitch in, in a month's time. But uh, last year, I think uh, in January, when, I, when we were raising a Series A, uh, we had four calls. The peak was six pitch calls in a day. So... <laughs> So there is significantly more interest and uh, more uh, ears uh, to which you can kind of sound off your ideas, and uh, especially when you're building for climate and hardware tech in general. And are there any pieces of advice that you'd like to pass on from from that journey in terms of fundraising um, to the next generation of, of founders in um, clean energy hardware? Yes, I would, and that's very one simple one, which is. That why you know uh, you're doing the right thing and uh, you're trying to solve for some really core and challenging problem, uh, but uh, more so to say practical advice is that do have something to uh, something which is exciting to show for. Uh, do have a, a solution, uh, so to say, a commercial deployment angle or a product uh, which is far more relatable to the current scenario, the current ecosystem, uh, while you might be solving something big in the larger sense. Because that helps, as you rightly said, you always need money to grow and build, uh, and money will only come when you are able to make people understand what you're trying to do, and that comes with a solution or product which can go out there in the market in today's scenario and is important for today's scenario. From our perspective, as an organisation that looks a lot at the uh, the policy landscape, the public sector, and the sort of the intervention logic for uh, for governments. 
we often have this idea in our minds that, you know, especially for environmental technologies, there's a role for for government grants and research money at, in the early stages of um, of entrepreneurship, and then uh, that company, if it's got a great idea, is able to go out and raise money from uh, from the private sector. That's a, a gross characterization, but what was your experience in terms of the available support from the public sector, um, either at the beginning of your journey or or more recently as you've moved towards solving kind of more public good problems? I think intent has been there and it has been growing uh, ever since we started in 2015. The challenge in India, at least, and I can speak for uh, public sector grants available in India and support available in India, the challenge in India has been of execution. So while the intent has been in the right place, execution has been a challenge. You apply for a grant, uh, then you keep on waiting for years. And by the time the grant comes, uh, that need is already gone. And you have moved to a next stage of your journey or next stage of your product development or whatever. And that that has been a big bummer. And that's why a lot of uh, startups in India working in the space uh, typically put up a very, uh, so to say, non-core uh, uh, product development or project up for grants, which is like if it comes, it comes. If it doesn't come, it doesn't impact anybody's life. So, so that has been a core challenge. And my, so to say, idea for solving for that challenge is that while you allocate capital for such kind of grants uh, from the public sector, let the private sector handle it. Call up, collaborate with uh, private sector, venture capitals, uh, capitalists or whatever. Uh, figure out a way that the execution part is left to the private sector uh, while uh, the money is coming in from the public sector. Thanks. That's a fascinating perspective. And I think India is a country where there has been a number of these public-private collaborations around channeling public money through private incubators. So, Akshay, um, you had earlier said that, you know, while India does have the resources and sometimes the infrastructure, the challenge is often in the fight uh, that is required to access it. So, you know, uh, what do you think can be some ways to improve access, uh, you know, in general to ensure that students beyond the IITs, beyond Roorkee, uh, students can or or young minds can access such infrastructure and such ecosystems. So what can be done, uh, you know, to help with that? And relatedly, you know, what are some of the main shortcomings in India's innovation ecosystems? You know, you talked about grants, but in in, in addition to that, is there something else that can be done to to improve uh, India's appetite for innovation. I think uh, the core problem is that uh, while we might be good uh, intellectually, uh, we are very bad at marketing. We don't. We, there's a very severe lack of awareness of what's available, uh, what is possible, and and like uh, when I was building my career in that sense, uh, it was it was not from advice from someone. Like uh, I had to kind of figure out my own path, and uh, this was an option available was not even known at that time to all the people who were uh, in college with me over there. So opening up these possibilities, creating awareness around these possibilities and uh, marketing what, what is possible, what kind of infra is available is very important. You talk to a, a tier three US college, they would do a far better job at marketing uh, than, than we do in India, right? So, so I think that is the biggest challenge. So... Akshay, you know, talking about more specifically on, you know, batteries and what you're doing, I think you made a very important point that, you know, some of the innovation that has happened in this space uh, has happened keeping in mind 
different environmental conditions and different use cases i think this this need for you know batteries to develop a certain way for the global tropical kind of regions is a very important one so uh, w- what do you suggest would be some ways to facilitate some more innovation and commercialization of technologies in this space in india in particular but but of course i mean uh, you know uh, this would apply to the to the global tropical region but i guess some of your observations would be more pertinent to india so what can be done to help the market develop in this sense so i think uh, let's understand the reason why this is happening why there is a huge gap over here and the challenge really is the the at the rate at the pace at which the ev industry or the battery industry is growing is phenomenal globally it's phenomenal right and all the global leading global innovators sitting across china europe and us they are full they're full to the brim uh, in terms of their capacity their bandwidth they don't have time uh, to kind of look at india and the tropical region so if if they are already getting Uh, their hands are full with solving for these geographies why even bother why even look at a difficult uh, so to say country region in that sense and hence it is very important to have local innovations uh, in these countries i'm not talking only about india we need to have innovations which are coming out of southeast asia uh, africa latin america locally because uh, understanding would be far better what is required on the ground and facilitating those innovations would be very important for the global good and i think that sort of perspective is such a great ambassadorial position for for many countries around the world so thank you for for giving that we we fully share that view i think at the at the iea and and you are now how many people at log9 materials so we uh, overall have a headcount of uh, around 160 people now at log9 uh, in our bangalore uh, facility uh and we are growing rapidly we were i think 40 a year back uh, so the the pace at which people are growing in the ecosystem is like rapid and you've just raised your your first series round so what come what's next what will you where will you be in in a couple of years time i i don't want to say you know a decades time because you know this could really be stratospheric at the, at this rate so a little further ahead Yeah, so basically uh, as we are solving for clean mobility we do realize that uh, you cannot solve for clean mobility without solving for clean energy and hence a significant uh, focus at log9 is also to provide the right kind of storage solutions uh, as we scale up our renewable energy generation so while uh, our prime minister has also gone ahead at cop26 and said that we'll scale to 500 gigawatt of renewable energy capacity that is that scale up is just not possible with the intermittency of solar and wind and hence uh, battery storage uh, is going to be key over there and we are uh, uh, doing a lot of pilots over the next one year uh, for stationary uh, storage at the grid level uh, combined with renewable energy farms as a matter of fact uh, we are also uh, deploying a pilot 250 kilowatt solar rooftop combined with our battery packs in our own campus uh, as a first pilot project which will come up by end of february march and uh, Uh, then there are more projects which are coming up in association with our various partners in the country and why it's important again like in electric mobility uh, the same kind of weather and climatic conditions uh, exist for stationary storage batteries as well and uh, and in certain cases far more severe on that end because a lot of our solar farms are in places like Rajasthan which uh, see uh, extreme temperatures of 
above 55 degrees Celsius and uh, having batteries which can sustainably or uh, consistently work in those kind of conditions for a 20, 25 year kind of a horizon is something which is very, very important. So we are focusing on that. Um, and another important aspect is that um, while we are trying to work on uh, solving for renewable energy storage, I do feel sad that not enough of nuclear is scaling up. Although Log9 uh, currently has nothing to do with nuclear energy in, in general, but uh, just as a climate enthusiast and activist, I would really like to see a share of nuclear going up in the world because that is one technology which we can't do without. And somebody shared with me a very interesting perspective on that, which is that as civilization progresses, we need to go towards uh, more and more concentrated forms of energy. Uh, and uh, while we started with solar to dry our clothes and then moved to fuel, and then now we're going back to solar, uh, which does not seem the right kind of progression. Uh, uh, essentially, there has to be something like nuclear, which is far more concentrated. You know, on that, I think it would be a very important contribution to to work on the stationary storage, as you say, at the grid level, because, uh, you know, it's it's not just the intermittency from the supply side, but in India's case, there's a lot of variability from the demand side as well. You know, our studies kind of estimate that uh, uh, because of the the uh, peak in demand caused by air, because of air conditioning demand, uh, we'd find that uh, India would be one of the largest markets for battery storage at the grid level within the next decade. So I think uh, it's very important that innovation also happen on this front. Absolutely. That's very, very important. Uh, uh, intermittency, as it's rightly said, is also on the demand side and with a lot of fluctuations. And that's the reason uh, while the globally accepted norm is to keep your fluctuations like voltage uh, fluctuations in less than 5% category, uh, in India, we see uh, fluctuations up to thirty percent, so that's not ideal at all. Yes, yeah, so so if you are in the the stationary storage or grid management business at the moment, then watch out because Log Nine Materials is is coming for you as well. Um, and I think this perspective of solving for the extreme conditions uh, may you know may also then lead to solutions that can be deployed globally if they are if they are cheap and cost effective enough. We warned you, actually, that we were going to subject you to some rapid-fire questions at the end of this podcast. Uh, we're going we're gonna to kick that off now and just ask you to give some concise uh, responses to the five innovation frontlines, uh, quick-fire questions. I'm going to start. Siddharth is going to come in with the, with the second one. Uh, very keen to hear your perspectives on these. So the first question is, will India get to net zero emissions before or after 2070? If it is left to people like us, I think it should be 2050 or before. Excellent. And uh, who do you think will be your biggest competitor in 2030? This could either be a technology or an actual company. So who would it be? I think wrong policy frameworks will be our biggest competitor till 2030. Because if you look at today's uh, uh, incentive policy around electric vehicles in India, it just depends upon the size of the battery pack, irrespective of the quality, safety, or any other kind of reliability around that uh, around that platform. Yeah. Great answer. Also a slightly evasive one, but a great answer. So if it were not for energy, what would you be working on? Food, sustainable food. Uh, I myself and my co-founder Pankaj, we became vegetarians three years ago. 
So we are a big believer of sustainable food and uh, I think food and associated activities is one of the largest contributors to carbon emissions. Excellent. And what new type of product do you hope that your company will be marketing in 2030? I think it will take us by then to really commercialize at scale the aluminum fuel cell technology for long haul mobility. So I think uh, post-2025 is where we'll really see uh, significant commercialization on the aluminum fuel cell side. And the last one, if you could collaborate with one country in India or even around the world today in order to scale up your operations, which one would that be? A country or company? Uh, one company. Oh, one company. Okay. I think uh, I don't have a particular company in mind, but I do have uh, a group of people which is Breakthrough Energy Ventures. I would really like to work with them. Okay. I hope they're listening. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> you have been listening to a conversation with Akshay Singhal, the founder of Log9 Materials. Thank you, Akshay, for sharing your experience with us. We wish you the best of luck with everything that lies ahead of you. You've been listening to Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovators and innovations that can take India, and indeed the world, to a net zero emissions future. Our next episodes will feature in-depth conversations with India's most promising innovators working on this global challenge.